And I got to hear these stories over and over again about how they were being treated by the local police and, um, you know, stories involving marijuana arrests and stories involving civil asset forfeiture and stories involving, um, you know, police misconduct. And it just went on and on. And after a while, there's still all these stories like, well, some of these stories must be true. <laughs> you know, not all these people are just having a bad interaction with the police department. And so over time, my, my, my views on law enforcement and kind of the way we police in American society has really transformed itself. And I, I no longer support and embrace the traditional model. And I, I think it's long overdue that we move forward. That is Lee Maddox. I'm Dwayne Lester. And this is Top Priority. Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of Top Priority, where we discuss ideas for human flourishing. This is a product of the Americans for Prosperity Foundation's Grassroots Leadership Academy. I'm Dwayne Lesser. Thank you for downloading. We've got a great podcast interview coming up with Captain Lee Maddox. I'm going to give you her biography here in a second, but I want to share with you a five-star review that we got on Apple iTunes. Free Ride 6772 wrote, I just finished episode three on policing and criminal justice reform. At the time of this writing, it's been just two weeks since George Floyd's death. All media channels have been clamoring with the new hot topic of criminal justice reform and policing, and it's hard to find an honest, precise narrative. Having spent over six years in law enforcement, witnessing a lot of these injustices firsthand, I can say that this podcast does the best job at succinctly and accurately highlighting the issues that truly need reform in American law enforcement. I'm looking forward to many more episodes. Thank you so much, Freeride6772. I appreciate you leaving that five-star review and encourage you to do the same. Now, our interview today, Lee Maddox retired as a captain from the Maryland State Police in 2007. In the 1990s, she worked as a patrol trooper and supervisor serving in the intelligence division. Maddox worked long-term undercover assignments and infiltrated criminal organizations, including the Ku Klux Klan. She later served as the commander of the Baltimore-Washington Metro Troops Planning and Research Division, Training Division, and as the coordinator for racial profiling consent decree related to the drug interdiction policies of the Maryland State Police. Maddox has also experienced as a criminal investigator, legislative coordinator, public affairs spokesperson, and academy instructor. Formerly a professor at the University of Maryland School of Law, Maddox was cross-designated as a special assistant state's attorney for Baltimore City. She earned her BS from John Hopkins University and her JD from the University of Maryland School of Law. Maddox currently works in private practice, and today she's going to tell her story and talk to us about civil asset forfeiture Enough for me. Let's get to the interview. Well, I can tell you that when I was getting prepared for this uh, discussion that we're going to have today, I did a Google search, Lee Maddox, civil asset forfeiture, 
and there wasn't a lot out there that brought you to those two things together. But I did see that you're a retired police captain. And now I just want to know, you know, tell me, tell me, basically, tell me your story. So uh, that's very broad. Um, it is. It is. I don't I don't need you to go back to, you know, when I was in kindergarten. <laughs> but I imagine there was a, there was a time when you, you know, you were on, on the force and there was maybe you could start with with a paradigm shift or an epiphany you had. How did you get from there to here? Yeah. So my um, scrutiny um, towards law enforcement probably started back in 2000 when I, and at that time I was a lieutenant with the Maryland State Police and a very good friend of mine uh, was murdered. He was an undercover, undercover officer working on a drug task force based out of Washington, D.C. And he uh, did a buy with a uh, mid-level drug dealer and the, the dealer circled back around and shot him in the head and he died from that. And um, at the at the time, in that moment, uh, it was very um, intense uh, because he was very popular. He was the president of our union. He was family man, um, just all around good guy and very popular um, in the community of law enforcement that I kind of transversed to that at the time of my life. And when he died, I thought, wow, why are we putting people like him in an undercover situation that is inherently so very dangerous um, over, you know, was essentially a kilo of Coke or whatever. And, um, you know, I started thinking introspectively about, you know, what did we need to do? What did we need to change in law enforcement to make things differently? Um, and didn't really come to any big conclusions, uh, continued along my career. Uh, at some point, I was promoted to captain and was put in charge of everything on I-95 from Delaware to Virginia, including the Baltimore and uh, Washington beltways. And, you know, had a blast, got to see uh, really high level drug interdiction programs um, in effect. I didn't directly supervise them, but they were they were working um, hand in hand with my troops um, day in and day out. And it was really fun. Um, enjoyed it a lot. And then I retired in 2007 and began, um, late, soon thereafter, began teaching. Um, I was a professor at the law school at, at Maryland Law. And in that capacity, I worked in um, low income and, and poor communities in Baltimore City delivering discrete legal services uh, via my student attorneys. And I got to hear these stories over and over again about how they were being treated by the local police and, um, you know, stories involving marijuana arrests and stories involving civil asset forfeiture and stories involving, um, you know, police misconduct. And it just went on and on. And after a while, there's still all these stories like, well, that's some of these stories must be true. <laughs> you know, not all these people are just having a bad interaction with the police department. And so over time, my, my, my views on law enforcement and kind of the way we police in American society has really transformed itself. And I, I no longer support and embrace the traditional model. And I, I think it's long overdue that we move forward. And one of those pieces that I've, I've looked at and commented on over the years is uh, civil asset forfeiture. Could you briefly describe what civil asset forfeiture is for someone who might not be familiar with it? Sure. So uh, there are two kinds of, of 
asset forfeiture. And uh, that means when the police or law enforcement um, come into your world and decide that the law allows them to take your stuff for various reasons. There's a, a criminal asset forfeiture where if you break a law and the police take you to court and you are convicted and, and given some sort of penalty by the judge, um, the police then use criminal asset forfeiture to attach whatever it was that you had that they can trace to your illegal activity, be it a house, be it a, a large amount of cash, or be it a vehicle. So that's criminal asset forfeiture. Civil asset forfeiture is when you are, let's say, pulled over by a police officer and a traffic stop um, reveals a large amount of cash or even a small amount of cash or a vehicle that's not titled to you or um, some other sort of um, asset um, that, that the police believe is somehow not uh, completely above board. The police in that instance, a civil asset forfeiture, can take your property from you uh, without actually having charged you with a crime. And in most cases, they do not charge you with a crime. Uh, you are given some paperwork that if you um, comply with all of the uh, the notices that are that will be given to you over time about this piece of property and you perhaps acquire a, an attorney to help you navigate a, what can be a very daunting si a system for a citizen, then perhaps you might be able to one day get your money back. But most of the time it's it's beyond people to be able to figure it out and the money then uh, goes to um, the seizing authority, uh, however that might work out to be. So who who makes that decision then? Is it just the police officer in the moment right there making the decision that this this property that they're about to seize was purchased or acquired via criminal uh, methods? Is 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 that it or is there another another system that allows that property to be seized? So the the trigger would be the officer on the scene, right? The officer that has the first-hand knowledge of the asset that they don't believe is is legitimate. Um, in most police departments, there would then be a, a reviewing body or a supervisor, perhaps just a, a single supervisor that will look at all of the paperwork and decide what route um, that 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 paperwork should take and the asset as well. I and mean, should it be um, adopted by the federal government? Um, and then in which case federal laws would um, apply to how that asset is treated. Um, should it be perhaps dealt with locally, um, in which case the state law uh, would would govern how that asset is treated? Or um, perhaps this is, is this really something that we should just give back to the person that, that it's that the money that we would put into trying to um, figure out what to do with it is and the time we would put into trying to figure out what to do with it is is not worth the, the value of the property itself. And, and in that case, it may be returned. So how often does that happen when you look at, at and you may not have this information, but when you look at the totality of these these instances where civil asset forfeiture happens, how often is it just given straight back with no hassle? Well, I think that depends. I think that depends on the uh, um, protocols within the individual police department that is um, involved. I think it depends on the monetary value uh, that's being uh 
look at. I mean, if we're talking about five hundred dollars, well, you know, probably we're going to give it back. But if we're talking about you know fifty thousand dollars, well, no, you know, we're probably going to go ahead and proceed with that. I don't know if you can tell me any stories that you've heard uh, regarding like civil asset forfeiture abuse, but do you have any any stories that you can share that really changed your your mind on 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 this process? Sure. The one story, uh, and it's a little bit dated now, but um, it was a gentleman that I was working with um, as in, in, in the legal clinic uh, in Baltimore City. And he he had gone to high school at Dunbar and played football and done very well and received a scholarship to go to a college out in uh, out west. Uh, I think it was somewhere out in Virginia or West Virginia. And he um was playing football in his first semester and for whatever reason um, decided to come home. Uh, I believe it was to pick up his uh, tax returns and to, he had a, he had a um, girlfriend at the time and they had a, a small infant and it was also to, you know, provide some money for the family while he was on, on break from college. And uh, while he was uh, driving around in the streets of Baltimore, he was pulled over by a police officer who, in February, mind you, uh, stated that he smelled marijuana emanating from the vehicle when when um, this gentleman drove by. So his his vehicle was pulled over. He was searched. They did, in fact, um, I think, find a little bit of marijuana, and they found his tax return money, which was still in the the you know the bank wraps the money in a in a paper bundle. Um, it wasn't a whole lot of money, but they found it and they took it. And they also impounded his car, which had his uh, child seats in there and uh, now he had no money to give to his family he had no way to get back to the college the university and it just really um, flipped his world upside down and he, he he ended up never going back to college after that and I think ultimately like 18 months down the road we ended up getting his his money back for him uh, but it was quite a battle was he ever charged with anything he may have been charged with um, um, misdemeanor possession of marijuana, which now is is legal. Um, the amount he had now in in, in this day and age is would be considered uh, legal. There's got to be times when people look at the hassle and say, "Forget it. I'm not going to go do that for for that little amount." Is it common right. that, that people will fight for this, or is it more common that people just wash their hands of it and consider it a loss? Yeah, I think that's right. I think more often than not, people just walk away. And uh, it's really a shame because if we don't fight for our rights, they, that's how they get eroded, you know? Yeah. When I think of this, I've got to think that when it started, I mean, there were good, there were good intentions here. I would think that when this was put in place, there were good intentions behind having this policy. And it seems yeah, well, like you're going back to you're going back to the mid 1980s um, when the, the the whole crack epidemic was sort of in everybody's mindset, and we were we were really focused on going after mid level or high level uh, uh, Rico narco terrorist sort of types, and this sort of um, this is just one of many uh, uh, pieces of legislation that was introduced that we can now see that in hindsight is extremely problematic. For many groups of our society, is this something that that morphed over time? Were there were, were there changes that were made that led to perverse incentives, or was was this were there 
perverse incentives included in it right from the beginning? I think there were some modifications over time. I'd have to go back and look at the legislative history to speak on that completely. Uh, but I do think there were some modifications over time. Um, certainly what we have seen are, are more uh, task forces. I mean, it just seems like Haida is rolling out a new task force every 48 hours, right? And so there's task forces literally blanking our, our country, and task forces are really important piece of the civil asset forfeiture world because that's how that's who's processing the stuff and that's how the federal adoption has become so seamless and i think um you know we're we're living in the middle of a pandemic right now and economic downturns and everything that's going to come from that ultimately and it's pushing up against this whole notion that well you know should we defund the police have you know we've heard we're having protests nationally over these issues and I think that when police departments start seeing their budgets slashed as a result of some of these protests and some of the bad acts that have happened over time, I think that they're going to be looking at civil asset forfeiture as really what's going to keep the boat afloat. Um, so we're going to have to be really mindful of this over the next probably five or ten years. One thing that I, I think is often overlooked, and I think it's, it's it's a failure to overlook it, is why why so many police departments across the country feel that they need to engage in this action to support their own budget. And there are there are people in in who are elected to offices who are demanding more and more and more from police departments, but giving them less and less and less. And all of the blame does not fall on the police department. I think there's plenty of, of, of people to look at where reforms are needed. Oh, no doubt. Uh, I mean, I really do think it's time for the police, police agencies in this country to get back to basics and to just focus on, you know, what they started out as, which really was, you know, a peace officer. And instead of trying to arrest their way out of every community, you know, perhaps, you know, do some more community engagement, community building. And also um, governments need to hire the appropriate social resources so that police officers aren't uh, looked at to do everything because it's just not, you know, it's not helpful. And it's, it's really bad for the police citizen, police community relationship, which is so important to solving crime. I mean, how are we going to solve crime if we can't even talk when nothing's going on? When you look at how this operates, I think, of course, it's going to be different based on state, county, even even cities. But the way it sounds like it used to work, it's changed, but the police would confiscate money. And then what would happen to that money if, if it wasn't claimed? Would that then go to the police department's budget? And I know, again, each state is different. No, it started out, it, it start, well, the way it started out is it used to go to the general fund. And the general fund is used to fund all of government, right? Not just the police department. So that's how that's how it started out, and that's why police departments are so um, uh, happy to use the federal adoption clause because that allows the feds to go ahead and process it under federal law, and then give the money directly back to the, the police department, and they're getting eighty percent back. Whereas if they process under local laws, 100% of it goes to the general fund, and they'll probably never see any of that money again. Help me understand what you mean by the, the federal adoption. Was it right. federal adoption policy? Is that what you said? 
Oh yeah, it's it's probably I don't even know. It's an act. It's it's a it's a law in the federal government that allows them to adopt money that has been seized by a local agency, and they I, they adopt they adopt it and they take that money and they uh, process it and make sure that you know no one has a legitimate claim to it. And then once all those um, court proceedings are concluded, then they they take take a 20% administrative fee off the top of the money and they give 80% back to the local jurisdiction that generated uh, the, the, whatever happened to, to make the uh, money come into the system. So is this why, this is, is this why every once in a while I'll see a photo of like a Lamborghini with police stickers all over it? And is that, is, is that from a, a civil asset forfeiture well, it might, and it might also be a criminal asset forfeiture. Okay. Okay. But yes, yeah, so generally, generally the police are not going out and buying Lamborghinis. <laughs> um, they're generally getting those as part of some sort of um, forfeiture program. Right. Right. So, what's the state of this program now? I mean, I keep seeing more and more of it in the news, and so there's a part of me that wonders if there's not a greater outcry against this than ever before. But, I mean, you're working in this every day. I'm, I'm curious what you see. Is this something that, that is getting more attention because more people are outraged about it? Or is it still something that, that needs more attention? Well, it definitely needs more attention because even though we've seen some reform efforts in, in certain states, I think Washington, D.C., and there's another state out there, maybe Michigan, that, uh, that have done some reform work, by and large, um, it's like 35 states that are really doing a bad job of this. And the worst offender in terms of um, civil protections is the federal government itself. And they haven't done anything. I mean, there's, there, there have been bills introduced, but they haven't been close to um, sort of uh, changing their status quo uh, since this thing began being discussed. So there's definitely a need to, to have it yeah, be talked about. And, and no, I, if anything, we're probably seeing more seizures than ever. And I would say, look out, because when the economic back of the police department gets broken, and we're getting we're getting ready to see that in the next couple of years, they are going to be turning towards asset forfeiture, specifically civil asset forfeiture, to make things not so painful. Is there anything that you wanted to talk about during this interview that we haven't talked about yet. Any question that you're really hoping I would ask or that you were prepared to answer? What have I no. not asked that you, you really wanted me to? No, I think you've done a, a really good job. Um, I'm just so happy you guys are covering this and getting it, getting some exposure to the issue. It, it's, it's just, it's one of those things that when you explain this to an average citizen, they have no idea. Right. It's right, just like, right. what do you mean if I I have forty thousand dollars in the trunk of my car because I'm going up to Mannheim, Pennsylvania to to do an auction and they only take cash. Are you telling me if I get pulled over along the way and the cop finds the money in the trunk that they can just take it without arresting me for a, a criminal offense? Is that what you're saying could happen? It's like, yeah, that's exactly what can happen. Yeah, and, so then, I, and then you're going to have to go to court to get it back. Right, and that's going to cost you probably five to ten thousand dollars to hire an attorney to help you navigate that. So it's a pretty, pretty big loss. Um, so I think that you know the education that you're that you're doing here is very commendable, and I hope that you guys keep at it. And anything I can do to support your efforts. 
Once again, big thanks to Captain Lee Maddox for that great, great discussion on civil asset forfeiture. If you have any questions regarding this podcast or any of the other podcasts, or if there's something you want to hear from us, please send us an email at toppriority at afphq.org. I look forward to reading your emails online. If you have questions or comments, please send them to us. Until next time, I'm Dwayne Lester. Take care, and we'll see you next time.